BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. It's Monday, May 15th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This week, I'm joined by a new guest host. Alexander Kim is from another podcast called Cited, which broadcasts from the University of British Columbia. Alex, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here on a bigger and more prestigious podcast than my own. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know if that's true, but thank you for saying so. (laughs) Um, We're delighted to have you. And I should tell our listeners that uh, uh, a few months back, actually, I got uh, an email from the Cited crew saying that they were interested in doing a number of shows on a topic that is very dear to my heart, which is women in STEM. Right. You are a woman in STEM? That's so I am told. Yes, that is true, (laughs) uh, as far as I know. Uh, And but of course, there's a lot of different ways in which this issue has been covered. And uh, you guys are producing four episodes in a row on the topic. Is that correct? We're going to do five in some order that are, uh-huh. it's going to be, it's, I wouldn't put a number on it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So we're, there'll be a number. Yeah. We're going to do a, a whole number. series. Yeah. Awesome. So a number of episodes and uh, where can our listeners find Cited so that they can listen to some of the other episodes that um, are not part of the Inquiring Minds collaboration, but are still on this topic? Well, uh, you can subscribe to Cited on uh, iTunes or Stitcher. Um, Our website lives at citedpodcast.com. It's it's a show about academia and research. And um, we're interested in, in how the big ideas of the ivory tower kind of um, influence the way the world works in a very similar way to you guys, um, actually. I think we have a lot of kinship, our shows. Yeah, which is why this collaboration came together so easily, and it's been so fun. Thanks for working with me on it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. <laughs> so for our listeners, we're going to have a uh, two-episode series, mini-series, and then the rest of the episodes uh, you can find on site, which Inquiry Minds won't be involved in, but we'll be listening avidly. Uh, and so we picked two shows to tackle two different topics about issues of women in STEM, and this show is all about the Leaky Pipeline. The Leaky Pipeline, right. So that is a name, that's a catchy name for 
what people use to kind of describe the phenomenon of, uh, of underrepresentation of women in STEM because there's all these sort of stages that lead from, you know, from elementary school, I guess, to a career in STEM. But um, all along the way, there's these points where women just seem to slip out of that pipeline. And um, it's kind of an open question as to why that happens. Some people think it's for one reason, some people think it's for the other. But there's some really interesting research happening now that's trying to figure out what exactly is going on there. And um, I talked to one of those people for the show. Uh, her name is Sharon Sassler. She's a professor at Cornell University. She's a social demographer, which means that she uses uh, statistics, basically, to try and figure out how culture and relationships influence um, society, basically. And uh, she's gotten really interested in this idea of the leaky pipeline and trying to figure out what's going on there. Yeah. So, you know, it, she didn't start out searching and, and researching the idea of why women leave STEM fields. Uh, she, she asks questions like, you know, how does being raised by a working mom affect how kids think about gender? Uh, or, you know, does getting married lead to better health outcomes for either per people in the couple? But, you know, it was a really interesting way in which she described how she got onto this women in STEM topic. Yeah, serendipitous. I was at the preschool uh, dropping my son off and met one of the other parents who actually uh, was focused on women in STEM. And I said, I have a great data set that we could use to follow these women from college into the labor market. So uh, I don't know about you, Alex, but uh, I have a kid in preschool, and I have to say I don't have any research collaborations that have stemmed from my interactions with other parents. Right. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sharon would, uh, would certainly advise starting. Um, she's had a lot of success that way. <laughs> this is another parent you're talking this to? This was another parent. So I met my uh, collaborator on many of these STEM projects at the preschool, uh, finding out about other people's interests and realizing that I was sitting on top of a data set that I'd wanted to explore something like this for a while. But she had the STEM expertise. And so we've been working together for uh, about eight years now. A lot of people say that children kind of make it hard to do your work, but I have found it very fruitful to have children and talk to other parents about what they're working on. Yeah. That other parent was Yael Levite, and she's a geographer at Cornell. And uh, the thing that Sharon and Yael wanted to study was that thing that we mentioned earlier, the leaky pipeline. At the high school level, um, girls is, are as likely as boys to be taking uh, a lot of these uh, uh, math and science heavy classes. Um, but the whole pipeline analogy uh, relates to how women leak out of this STEM pipeline at every subsequent level. So there's likely as uh, boys to be taking intensive math science uh, classes in high school, they get to college, they're less likely to major in many STEM areas. So they're more likely to major in the life sciences, for example, but they're uh, very underrepresented in computer science and in engineering. So a lot of universities are putting a lot of resources into uh, increasing the representation of women at, at the college level in computer science and engineering uh, in, uh, to try to get the uh, representation of women up. But then when you look at the next stage, which is the transition into the labor force, um, we, we continue to see leakage. 
So Sharon was exactly right. According to the National Science Foundation, as of 2010, women received half of all bachelor's degrees in science and engineering, but the proportions of women who end up working in those fields isn't nearly that high. Um, there are a couple of exceptions, though, natural science and biology, which are about at gender parity. And the question is why, right? So is it that they cannot find a job in those fields? Uh, is it that those fields are, are crowded and it's, it's hard to find work in those fields? Or is it that they decide that they don't want to work in those fields after getting their degree and they're going to do something else? And if that's the case, then how do they fare? Do they earn more or do they earn less by deciding not to uh, use the job skills that they learned uh, at, uh, at, at college? And to try and answer that question, you went to this enormous data set. Tell me about this, this data set. So we use the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth. Uh, it was a large data set of about 13,000 young adults who were uh, 14 to 21 when they were initially interviewed in the late 1970s. And the beauty of this data set is that it followed these individuals over time. So they're now... Uh, mid, they're now in their 50s, and it followed them every year and then every other year, uh, and has obtained a, a really rich set of questions on their attitudes about uh, uh, fertility, whether they wanted to have children or not, their attitudes about gender roles, uh, what their occupational aspirations were when they were initially interviewed, um, and then the kinds of whether they got a college degree, in what field, what kind of jobs they entered. There's even information on the kind of um, work family policies that the companies they work for have. Uh, and information on when they have children, when they get married. So it allows us to follow these young people from uh, late adolescence through college and into their early careers and beyond. One of the factors that Sharon wanted to test is actually a fairly old idea. Um, a lot of people think that the reason that women don't take jobs in STEM and why they leave their STEM jobs after a few years is related to starting a family. Women want to get married. They want to have kids. They want to be at home to raise them. Well, that's the idea anyway. So that survey that Sharon was talking about, it included questions like, do you agree or disagree with the following? A woman's place is in the home, not the office or shop. Or, disagree. Uh, yeah, disagree. Or, or men should share the work around the house with women. Agree. Ag agree. Nice. <laughs> Employment of wives leads to more juvenile delinquency. Um, well, I've read some things that indicate the opposite, that in fact, uh, kids of working moms tend to fare better in a number of different measures. So by getting access to these kinds of data, Sharon could actually predict whether a person who has more traditional values, say agreeing to a statement like a woman's place is in the home, not the office or shop, was less likely to get a job in STEM. So one of the reasons we were very interested in looking at um, uh, attitudes about uh, work and family is that we thought that if women expected to uh, marry late or not marry, uh, and if they thought that they would limit their number of children, that they would be more likely to enter into a STEM job. And uh, that is not what we found. Uh, so we find uh, that if women expect to marry late, they're no more likely to enter into a STEM job than if they expected to marry early. 
Uh, and if they expected to only have one or no children, that they were no more likely to enter into a STEM job, right? Uh, we find very different things for men. So men who expected to marry young, they were more likely to go into STEM jobs. And if they expected to limit family size, they were more likely to have, have jobs in STEM. So you'd think that the characteristics that would predict employment for men would also predict employment in STEM for women. And that is not what we found. Hmm. And, th- and this goes against kind of what I think is still even a commonly held belief about uh, working women in these fields or why women don't work in these fields, that they want to start a family, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's still a commonly held belief. A lot of the research on what affects uh, whether or not women major in STEM has been finding that family attitudes has no effect on whether they major in STEM, in part because we've seen marital delay. And a lot of these women are not anticipating getting married until their mid-late 20s or early 30s. So they choose their major, right? They're not thinking, oh, I'm going to have to leave the workforce when I get married because uh, we tell them that, you know, there are equal opportunities. Um, And we have another paper that actually looks, it's the companion piece to the missing women in STEM. And it looks at women who went into STEM jobs and whether they stayed in those jobs. And we find that they uh, tend to leave STEM jobs at a very rapid pace, but it is not a result of getting married or having a child. They leave before then, right? So they're leaving within the first few years. Uh, And we think that might have something to do with the climate they experienced at the time. And then, yeah, by climate, she means workplace culture, not global warming. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that's funny. Like, for example, how do STEM fields... uh, Think about you know what, what are their view, what are people who are in STEM fields and different STEM fields what are their views about women um, do the majority of people in those fields think women belong in the industry or do they have more traditional ideas about gender because if they do that could be why women aren't going into or staying in these jobs one of the findings of our uh, the missing women in STEM paper is that we looked at the gender uh, ideology of men and women, and men had considerably more conservative gender ideologies than did women. So the women who are working in these STEM jobs are ones who think that w- children don't suffer when women work and that you know you should have dual career couples, and they're working with men who don't necessarily agree with that and who might, uh, there might be stigma, they might uh, believe that these women are uh, not doing well by their children if they're working. So it might be difficult to be this more liberal uh, engineer type uh, being employed among much more conservative men. Hmm. And and then on the other hand, um, or, you know, even hand in hand with this, you, you occasionally... I guess not even occasionally, you're often hearing about these um, these kind of heinous things happening in the industry, like Uber is going to news a Gamergate. lot. Yeah. Gamergate. Yeah, so that's yeah. also, uh, if, if women are a small uh, group within any field, there is this perception that it's challenging to be a minority in these industries and that uh, having such a small uh, uh, representation makes for a chilly climate. Um, that you might be less likely to be mentored, uh, that people might uh, not joke around with you the same way, and then that means that they're less comfortable with you. 
Uh, so, so at the moment, I have another project where we are actually doing interviews with recent college graduates who are in their first and second year of employment to find out what the workforce is like for them, what they're experiencing. And we're right now doing our second year of interviews, and I'm reading through some of the transcripts and uh, some of the women in their second years say they're still the only woman <laughs> who's working in this field. And whereas initially they were okay with the men, stop, you know, the men are afraid of swearing around them initially, but by year two, it's kind of like, ugh, get over it already. So, uh, so the climate can be wearing if they're treated like a fragile flower all the time. You know, that's not what they expected. And uh, uh, so... Uh, it could be that, yeah, it's a different environment for them. And at some point, it's it's wearing. These problems that Sharon brings up are, you know, fairly difficult to solve. So, you know, one end of the spectrum is sort of the Sheryl Sandberg lean in. You know, women just have to be tough if they want to be in tech or if they want to be in other STEM fields. Um, and the question is, is, is that, first of all, effective? And true, that seems almost just counterproductive, right? If you're if you're essentially taking away, um, you know, an, a, a woman's ability to uh, to be herself, and yeah. you have to like put on this whole other layer, it, it, you know, are you really going to get the best productivity out of that employee? Yeah, but but that idea, the idea that like you need to sort of figure out the the way to survive a field or like to 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 thrive in a field by changing kind of your personality or whatever, it's sort of like a really common belief. Yeah. And, you know, but the other thing I will say is that I have faced some of these issues and I have acted tough and it, it still hasn't gotten me the same reactions as if I were a guy. You know, right. a guy acts tough and, you know, he's often respected and there's like a whole series of things that can happen. You know, when I acted tough, uh, there were different consequences. Right. And so it's it's more complicated than that. Right. There's a special word that, that people invented, you know, starts with a B. <laughs> there are, there are, you know, there is, of course, but it's it's more than, and it's like, well, okay, I don't care if you call me names. It's more about how then you treat me and how you respect me and what you write in the letter of recommendation that is going to be used for me to get my next job and so forth. It's all these subtle things that start to add up and just can make it more difficult. And it can make women feel as if they're, they have to work twice as hard. And yes, that's fine for the majority of the time. I mean, you know, it's fine in a lot of different ways. But on the other hand, it gets it wears you down. Many people think that if women just acted like men, uh, that they would be working in these fields, you know, and that is not the case, right? So even if they are demonstrating uh, ideal worker characteristics in this cohort, they uh, were less likely to get hired. I think the labor market was adjusting to uh, the presence of women uh, still in professions. So uh, it was not really a shock to me that women with these ideal attributes wouldn't be as likely as men with the same attributes to transition into the labor market, in part because even if the women have these ideas and attitudes about their lives, employers might not. Now, we can't assess the what's going on with the employers and whether they were discriminating against these women. Uh, but we what we do see is that there's a gap in uh, transitions into employment for women and men. And if if women had the same attributes that men did, uh, 
uh, or if they they would be more likely to enter into the STEM workforce in some ways. They they can't share the same attitudes because men who expect to marry early are far more likely to go into STEM, and that would not advantage women, <laughs> in part because of what that means. So for a man, that would mean that he'd have backup at home, and he wouldn't necessarily be responsible for uh, things in the house, that somebody else would be taking care of that. That's less likely to be the case if it's a woman who marries young uh, before the age of 25. She's more likely to have increased responsibilities at home as opposed to less, uh, fewer responsibilities. What Sharon has uncovered seems like pretty good evidence that it's the culture of some of these STEM workplaces that explains the leaky pipeline, not just a woman's desire to have a family. Right. And then, so that leads us to sort of the next step or the next problem, which is figuring out exactly what it is about culture that is creating such an exclusionary environment. And the next thing that comes after that is what do we do about it, right? So that's kind of what Sharon's trying to figure out now. Well, I currently have this project where we are doing in-depth interviews with STEM graduates, men and women, to see how uh, how they're faring in their early career transitions. So what the work world is like for them, uh, if it's meeting their expectations, um, if they're thinking of uh, going on to graduate school, and if so, in STEM or in business. So we're looking at uh, these early career transitions, three years, four years out. Um, and then I think that we do need to know more about how transitions into relationships and marriage and family building differentiate men's and women's uh, ideas about the kind of occupations they're going to stay in. So we're interested in looking at the current career climate because my earlier work is based on an older cohort and I want to know what's changing. Um, I'm also doing some work um, that looks at uh, the gender wage gap in various uh, STEM fields like computer science and engineering uh, and who stays in it. And so uh, there is this question from a couple decades ago about what's the right proportion of women uh, to make it the most comfortable, right? So it's, there's this idea that 30% is, 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 is the sweet spot. Uh, but we haven't tested that, actually, with uh, different professions. That's just this idea that you need 30% of women in uh, government or in business, you need women who are hiring you or who managing you. And we're looking at uh, that with regards to engineering and computer science because, you know, we don't know is that uh, do, do women have to have a, a, a certain number of other women there for them to uh, feel like they belong? Um, is that one of the factors that contributes to them exiting STEM, that they just don't feel like they fit? So climate, we're very interested in trying to figure out what's going on with climate and what makes for a more or less comfortable environment for women to work in. Um, but that might fly in the face of how people view STEM people. Professor Sassler, thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay, thank you for having me. You're listening to Inquiring Minds. We'll be back in just a minute. There's always an excuse for not eating healthy. You don't have a personal nutritionist or you don't have access to the right ingredients. You're too tired to plan and shop and cook. Well, your body doesn't understand excuses. That's why Sunbasket got rid of them. Sunbasket makes it easy to cook delicious, seasonal, nutritious meals in your own kitchen. Get dinner on the table in about 30 minutes. It's healthy cooking made easy. 
Each Sunbasket meal comes with pre-measured, fresh ingredients and easy-to-follow directions. And what I like about it is that the packaging is environmentally conscious. And it's delicious. I've cooked with Sunbasket things I never would have cooked for myself, and they've been really good. What's more encouraging than that? Eating right starts now with Sunbasket. Go to sunbasket.com slash minds today and get your first three meals free. That's sunbasket.com slash minds to get three healthy, easy-to-prepare meals free. sunbasket.com slash minds. Welcome back to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Alexander Kim. Before the break, we were talking uh, to Sharon Sassler about the leaky pipeline and her idea or her finding, I should say, that it's really not about necessarily a woman's different values or desire to raise a family. It's about workplace culture. And and her work really overturns this idea that uh, it's about family, that it's that women are choosing to leave the field because they want to start families and stay home. Um, it's actually really about sort of uh, toxic workplace cultures. Yeah, and you know we do do know that some of the STEM fields are worse than others. So there is more gender parity in fields like uh, biology, for example. But one of the worst uh, offenders in terms of these fields is computer science. Uh, it used to actually be better than it was today. Sharon actually was a co-author in a paper in 2016, and uh, they reported that in 1995, um, about a quarter of the computer science jobs in you in the U.S. were held by women. 15 years later, that number was only 20%. So it's actually getting worse over time, which is really bad. Going in the wrong direction. And so we wanted to get a picture of what being a woman in computer science is like and and, and, uh, living in that industry. So I spoke with uh, Alyssa Shavinsky. Alyssa is uh, she's a, a Silicon Valley kind of person. She's founded a number of tech startups, and she writes a lot about women in tech, too. Um, she's the editor of a book called Lean Out, The Struggle for Gender Equality in Tech and Startup Culture. And uh, when I spoke with her, I was expecting to hear a lot of horror stories. But the surprising thing about Alyssa is that she's loved working in tech since the beginning. You know, uh, all of my friends were already in startups. It was 1999, and I had uh, a group of older friends who'd already graduated, and they were already working as programmers and designers and founders of companies. So I wanted to be like my friends. In 1999, I joined Ethan Zuckerman's uh, startup Geek Corps, and uh, that got my career started. I was the I was the only person I knew my age in startups. How old were you when you started? I was a junior in college. I was an intern at Geek Corps, but I was part of the founding team, and the company was acquired a few years later. Uh, and then I joined Everyday Health, which ended up being a tremendous company. They IPO'd. I was one of the first employees there, but I joined working the night shift, just hanging out with my friends. Uh, so I got into tech because it was so friendly. It was so warm. My friends were already there. I had um, more job offers than I could even process. It was very different from how the industry is today. Right. So yeah, you have written about how the industry used to be when you first started and how um, basically you didn't see sexism as a problem in those days. Uh, Why not? Uh, You know, 
Sexism may have been a problem uh, in Silicon Valley and in other parts of the world, but in the spaces that I was moving through, I didn't see it at all. My friend group was completely gender balanced and the women were programmers, the men were programmers. It didn't really matter. Uh, and the thing is, in 1999, in 2001, being a nerd was still a really niche thing. You know, this was before Facebook, this was before this was before so many young kids made so much money in tech. And so it was like all of the nerds just had to band together. It wasn't quite cool yet to be a programmer. And so you didn't have this skepticism, you know, about new people coming into the industry. It wasn't like you, you were looking at them and wondering what they want from you. Yeah, and you know, there's this pattern recognition problem that started up and we just didn't have it before Facebook, before Apple. Uh, this is a problem that came about later on. You know, Mark Zuckerberg ended up being like this iconic figure for what a founder should look like. Um, but before Facebook was launched, you didn't have that pattern recognition of young white men. Mm-hmm. And you like, even as time went on and other people started to find issue with sort of the culture of tech into the 2000s, uh, past 2010, um, you would still defend it. Why, why, why did you defend uh, the culture of tech? Yeah, I wrote that article uh, entitled, That's It, I'm Finished Defending Sexism in Tech. And that's because I had been okay with what I'd seen up to that point. I was just all about working hard and getting stuff done. And I didn't want to think about politics. I didn't want to think about, you know, anything but the work. Uh, but when I saw at TechCrunch Disrupt that people were being so juvenile on stage and that the sexism was so disruptive, that's what changed my mind. So for those of you that don't know, TechCrunch Disrupt is an annual tech conference held in San Francisco and New York, and recently in London and Beijing, too. It's a pretty big deal for the industry. Quick warning before we go ahead, there's like some pretty, uh, pretty explicit uh, sexism coming up in the next minute or so. So. so if you've got kids listening, you might want to plug their ears. Yeah. Uh, and at this conference, they have a hackathon where programmers have the opportunity to show off a concept for an app or a company. Uh, and these guys from Australia at TechCrunch Disrupt in 2013 came on the stage and they had an app that they called Titstare. 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 Titstare is an app where you take photos of yourself staring at tits. Why, Dave? Why? Well, I'll tell you, Jethro. It's science, my good friend. Science. Science? Did you know that looking at breasts is directly linked with a good, healthy heart? So what's the problem, Dave? Well, women just aren't that warm to it. So what can I do on Titstar? Well, you can watch the real-time feed. Is it full of funny little tits? Oh, you betcha. You can like your favourites. And you can upload your own using photo effects by Radium One. Dave, I think this is the breast hack ever. It's the breast, most titillating fun you can have. Thanks. Uh, and they thought that this was a really funny joke. Um, I didn't think it was so funny. And that's for a lot of reasons, including my own conservatism. There were nine-year-old girls in that audience. And the programming, this adult content was really, really inappropriate 
for the environment. It was not only sexist, it was really unprofessional and really inappropriate for a conference. Um, and, how, and how did the room react? People, you know, they thought it was funny. Um, and I wasn't actually in the room. People think that I was there. I was following along on Twitter. I was following along online from home. Um, but, it, you know, the way that the internet works now, it can feel like you're there. Um, and I watched the videos and uh, I was, you know, writing about it and talking about it in real time and the Wall Street Journal was interviewing me. So, you know, I was, I was really in it and I was actually in the apartment of a TechCrunch writer when all of this was going down. So, you know, I was very close to, I was close to all of it. Uh, and it, it was a problem. It was a moment where I had to acknowledge that we couldn't just ignore sexism because it was, it was too much. And, and it's not just the sexism. The sexism is tied to this idea that you're gonna show up and you're not going to make any accommodations for anybody else. And that, that's what I saw. I saw, you know, these guys going on stage and they're going to say whatever they want to say and it doesn't matter who else is there. So, you know, that's sexism insofar as it's inappropriate to women. Um, but it's even more than that. Like, they were unwilling to restrain these very inappropriate adult, you know, sexual comments, even with children there. Uh, and that's the moment where I had to say, there's something really wrong with what's going on in the industry. And we need to figure out how to be professional. Everybody deserves to have a professional work experience. And these conferences are an extension of that. Conferences should be a professional space. And I don't know why that's so controversial. Alyssa says this kind of woke her up. Uh, she started seeing tech suddenly with new eyes. And she started to understand why she couldn't see all the sexism before and why she had been putting up with it. When I was running my own companies, I didn't see the sexism quite as much because when you're the boss, you set the tone. So I started to see the sexism a lot more when I kind of woke up out of my little cocoon, um, you know, of working with my close friends and running my own companies. Once I started to get out in the world a bit more, I saw how pervasive this is. And you see that now, right? Like so many women are coming forward with their stories. Some of this is the internet too, right? Like. I remember being early in my career, unsure why men who were less competent than me, less successful than me within the company were getting promoted and I wasn't. And I remember my dad saying like, maybe it's sexism. And I looked at him, I was like, I hadn't, I'd never heard of this before. No one talked about sexism in you know, 2003, 2004. Before you had Twitter, before you had social media, you just had your isolated experience. So all I knew is my manager didn't like me and I didn't know why. I didn't, I didn't have a baseline of comparison. The, the way I do now, now we have aggregated data. Now we have women coming forward and comparing their experiences and seeing that you know the common factor in really, really talented women having issues in technology companies is their gender. And so you start to put, you start to put it together and understand. So I actually experienced a lot of sexism when I was younger. I just, I didn't know that that's what it was. I was hustling. I was just hustling so, so hard. And whatever sexism and things I experienced, I just pushed them aside. And I was only focused on 
getting to a place where I'd be able to do the work that I wanted to do. I wanted to build innovative products with awesome people. And that's all that I cared about. That's all I wanted. And I was willing to go through anything to get there. And so a lot of my, you know, brushing aside sexism was like, I just didn't have time for it. I was like, I don't have time for this shit. So then tell me, um, after you have this realization, what changed for you? The biggest change for me was putting together Lean Out. I wanted to put together a book of women's experiences that was really positive because even after TechCrunch Disrupt, I still was having a wonderful time in tech. Like I was experiencing sexism, but I was also having a blast and I was very focused on the positive, you know, and and I had definitely had bad experiences, but then I was able to put together a team of people who I got along with really well and we were all very respectful of each other. And so I, I felt like all of that was behind me and that there was this really positive side to being a woman in tech. And that's what I wanted to explore in my book. Uh, when I put out a call for submissions, I was expecting other women to write in with a story similar to mine about like how amazing it was to come into Silicon Valley and build things and work with people. You know, I, I was having such a good time being CEO of Glimpse. And yeah, and, and the submissions that I got were all about women being excluded and feeling excluded. So that, that turned everything around for me because I spent almost a full year reading these stories, editing these stories, talking to women about what their experiences were. And I realized how pervasive these issues are. I realized that I'd been having a good experience, but that was very unique. And I realized that the reason for my good experience was because I was CEO of that company. I just wanted to ask you about the title of the book. So um, it's called Lean Out, right? And it's obviously a response to Sheryl Sandberg, right? Lean In. Um, and that book is kind of about encouraging women to... Um, you know, try harder to to fit in more, to assert themselves, to, uh, um, some people have said it's, it's, you know, about assimilating into tech and business culture. And um, if that's what it means to lean in, uh, what does it mean to lean out? So I'm a big admirer of Sheryl Sandberg insofar as she was really one of the first women to come out and say women's leadership is important, feminism is important, like championing women, yeah. So that was a really important first step. Uh, but then we needed something more. So lean out is more of a response than a critique to lean in. Um, leaning in is about this idea that like women need to show up and they need to to not leave before they leave. Lean out is this idea that women should be able to be authentic at work. Women should be able to be comfortable and express themselves. And that, that women want and they deserve more. Lean out is all about like navigating work environments and navigating Silicon Valley so you can be more yourself. And those are the stories in Lean Out. The, the women and the genderqueer people who contributed to Lean Out were all about this idea that they didn't quite fit in and that they didn't want to lean in. 
There's 19 essays in Lean Out. So there's ones about the ubiquitous bro grammar culture of Silicon Valley. There's an essay about being transgender in tech. There's one about facing sexual harassment and rape from colleagues. And Alyssa spent a year commissioning and editing these pieces for the book. So Lean Out was the thing that did it for me. It was putting together Lean Out and seeing these stories um, that really, really changed me. Um, and and I'm, I'm still going through that process. You know, even, even after Lean Out, I still had this arrogance about my own experiences in tech. And um, then I became an employee and I became a recruiter for a little bit. And I started to see more and more of the industry and more and more stories started to come out. And it's like I'm going through this ongoing process of appreciating how deep and how pervasive the problems are for people who don't fit in. And that's often women, that's often people of color, that's often queer people. But what's remarkable is it impacts anyone who just wants to show up and be professional. And so I think I can't emphasize this enough. I, it really behooves managers to get rid of toxic employees, to get rid of employees who are propositioning other people, to get rid of employees who don't understand professional boundaries. Uh, it's, it's not only the obviously outsider types. It's not only the people who don't fit in visually. Um, I mean, I think managers should be sensitive to that. They should care about everyone on their team, but they would be surprised to discover, you know, it, it's most of the people in an office who want a professional environment. Um, but it's really hard to be that person who, who says, look, you know, we shouldn't be drinking this much beer or we shouldn't be going to a strip club or like, you know, I respect women. I don't want to make sexual jokes about women, you know, just so I can show up and be a programmer. So Alyssa doesn't like the term leaky pipeline. She thinks it makes the problem too simplistic. Yeah, I was one of the first people to come out and say that the pipeline problem uh, is, well, you know, BS, that we need to that, that we need to stop saying this, that it's insulting. You know, women are already here and they're already awesome. Um, it's it's very frustrating to hear hiring managers or CEOs saying that there just aren't good enough women to hire. What that tells me, what that tells all of us, is that when you see a talented woman, you still don't see her. Uh, and and it also speaks to well, there there's so much to unpack there, uh, but it's now pretty well understood that the pipeline problem really comes down to a lack of effort on the part of technology companies and a lack of successful retention. Um, so I'd like to take a step back and talk about something that is less well understood and might be considered more of an insight, which is why these companies can't even fix their hiring. Because companies like Google and Facebook are now genuinely trying really hard. Not everyone in these organizations cares about diversity, but the people who care about it inside the organization are very well empowered. So, you know, why? Like, why, right? Like, why isn't this working? Uh, 
I spent a little bit of time as a recruiter actually trying to really understand this. So the first problem is how we do recruiting and recruiting to really get beyond patterns. It takes a lot of time and it's slow and you have to work really hard to bring people in because if you're trying to bring in people who are outside of a certain pattern, like they need a bit, they need to know that it's a good environment for them that it's a safe environment and that they're going to be really welcome there. And there's a whole process for that around, you know, recruiting them the right way and finding them. So companies don't necessarily want to put that time in. Right. And this is something you were talking about earlier, right? Um, The pattern recognition problem. And this is the idea that, um, you know, a good employee is basically someone who who rep who resembles Mark Zuckerberg or uh, Peter Thiel or something like that. Right. Yeah, and people don't realize how recruiting works. I didn't realize until I had a recruiter account on LinkedIn. So the first thing is recruiters can send emails to people on LinkedIn without even seeing their profile. There's a way where you can make a form letter and basically just like click the names of people you want to send it to. So that explains why people get messages that have nothing to do with who they are. And and what happens is recruiters are doing a numbers game. You know, what I was doing was like a more specialized kind of recruiting where I would look for like one or two really, really special candidates. And it was very labor intensive. Most companies aren't prepared to spend that like enormous amount of resources to bring in a diverse candidate pool. And so what recruiters have to do is they type in a few keywords. And I found that if I really was trying to do stuff you know, budgeting my time wisely, I had to do this too, which was very frustrating. It's one of the reasons why I'm not doing recruiting anymore. Hmm. What were, what would those keywords be? You have to type in like Stanford and Harvard and try and get like the top schools that you expect someone to come from. You type in like Facebook and Google and Amazon and the top companies you expect someone to come from. And then you get like basically a whole bunch of white guys from age like 22 to 27, and then you message them. So The way that LinkedIn is set up, which is how recruiters tend to operate, and the other way the recruiters operate is through your alumni networks and your um, affinity networks within an organization, which just amplifies whoever's already there. All of the tools that recruiters use are designed to help you find the people who are most common in an industry. Um, And so we'd have to do recruiting in a totally different way. We'd have to spend so much more time, so much more resources on recruiting if we wanted to have different results. And so companies talk about the pipeline problem, but like what's their pipeline? Their pipeline is recruiters sitting on LinkedIn typing in common keywords, and it's their recruiters using the networks of people inside the existing companies. It's very, very hard. It takes a lot of time. It's very expensive to actually bring in people who are different. And companies say they want to do that, but they're, it's so expensive. It's so time consuming. It's so radically different from how anything is done right now. Companies aren't prepared to, you know, like quadruple their hiring budget and take three times as long. That's like a really, really big thing for a company to do. Hmm. So you, you mentioned that it would, it would be much more expensive to change recruiting and to, you know, to find the underrepresented people and, and basically send messages to them and bring them in for interviews. Why would it be so, so expensive? Uh, well, if you're looking to hire, say, an iOS engineer, 
and you're willing to hire anyone, there are just so many people who are, you know, young, white, or Asian men. Um, and that's, it's going to be very fast for you to find a candidate from that profile. If you're looking for someone who is uh, less well represented, you have to look harder for that person. Um, now, I think that that's really important to do, uh, but it's more expensive. There's this other problem, which is important to acknowledge as well, which is when these candidates come in, we don't see them. You know, and that, that shows up when you see when you see VCs, when you see um, hiring managers say that the women just aren't there. You know, the first problem is do they, they, they don't even think that they exist, right? Like, I remember one VC posted on Twitter, are there any women who are founders of SaaS companies in New York? Like, at all. Hmm. What's a SaaS company? It's software as a service. Okay. Now, at the time, I was the founder of a SaaS company and obviously female. Um, and I remember being a little offended, like, he was just asking if we exist at all. Like he, he thought it was possible that there are just no women who run these kinds of companies. And so, so there's definitely this problem where a lot of people who are influential in the industry still don't think that women and people of color are even there. Or when, they're, when they see someone who is a woman, they, they're not able to see the accomplishments for whatever reason. So, you know, that that's the other piece. Like, even, even if you're able to hire someone who's really great at doing diversity hiring, diversity recruiting, and you're able to get that pipeline in, you still have to get that person hired, and there's so much unconscious bias. And there have been so many studies that have attested to this, that the same idea presented by a man versus a woman, like, it seems so much more credible when presented by a man. Right. So there's just, there's so many hurdles. Um, it's, it's a bit overwhelming, to be honest. Like, wow, how are we ever going to get there? Uh, and for what it's worth, I do think we will. And, and I think the key, like the way that we're going to make things better in this country and in Silicon Valley is, you know, the leadership is starting to change. You've got uh, people like Arlen Hamilton coming in and doing VC. I actually know so many women who've started their own VC funds. You get more women in VC, you get more companies funded that are by women. You get more women on the boards because the VCs end up sitting on the boards. You get, you know, once you start providing more opportunities, that makes a really big impact. So there's there's reason to be optimistic, but I do think it's it's going to be slow and and, you know, the Trump administration is trying to bring us all back to 1950. So, you know, there's that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you are kind of talking about a pipeline problem, but I think your focus, your your pipeline that you're focused on is uh, further down the chain than than the pipeline. A lot of other people are focused on, which is like early education, basically, like like teaching kids coding in high school and in uh, college and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I'm not against that, but um, part of me thinks it's a bit of a disaster to, you know, bring more women into a field where they're not necessarily going to be seen. So on the one hand, like, of course, we want to teach women how to code. And part of the reason why I was able to get into tech so early and have such a great experience was because I was always told I could do anything I set my mind to. I was always given, 
you know, tons of access to technology and to science. I went to science high school. Um, I went to Cornell for a summer and I studied veterinary medicine there when I was in high school. Like I had, I had all these opportunities and, and we should be sharing that with young girls. But I worry, I worry about prepping all of these women for industries like, and then when they get there, what's it gonna be like? Um, maybe, maybe it'll be different. Maybe by bringing so many women into the industry, they'll come in and they'll also be leaders and things will be better in 10 years. Um, but I, I, for me, like I was and I am a female founder right now. You know, my friends are women in tech right now and they're doing awesome work and they're not getting funded and they're not getting hired. I mean, some of them do, but it's not comparable to men. And so when I look at the problem, that's what I see, that there are women who are already here and already awesome. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't buy this idea that we need to like fix women. Women are awesome, women are great. If you can't see that, like that's what needs to get fixed. And so it's not like, oh, we have to bring more women in. Like, what the hell? You're not hiring the women who are here. You're yeah. not funding the women who are here. You want more women? It's like, okay, you've got like three steaks on your plate and you're asking for the menu? Screw that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Alyssa Shavinsky is currently the Director of Sales and Marketing at NextKey Incorporated, and you can find her on Twitter at Alyssa, that's with two S's, Beth. So, Alex, thank you so much for uh, collaborating with me on this. It certainly opened my eyes to a lot of data that I hadn't been aware of. And of course, Alyssa's experience is just so raw and interesting. Yeah, Alyssa's really interesting. Um, I love that she didn't have this this experience that you hear a lot about, but then her eyes were open to it and she started to see everything differently. I love that about her story. I mean, I, I don't, don't love that it had to happen because, you know, I just wish there was less. I'm tying myself in, in a circle here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, also uh, there is this kind of... Uh, It makes me also wonder, you know, how her view will change 10 years from now, too, because she sounds like she has a lot of energy and she's, you know, done a lot of fighting and, you know, she's happy to do that. Uh, But my experience has been like that, you know, that was me 10 years ago. Like I would have I would have had very similar things to say. And then after just dealing, you know, just dealing with it for so long, you just kind of feel like, you know, why don't I get the same treatment and the same respect as my male colleagues? Mm. And uh, it starts to not be okay anymore <laughs> for mm. me just to work harder. You know what I mean? It starts to feel like, you know, there's there's a kind of rage that begins to uh, percolate and it just makes me choose projects much more wisely and mm. ones in which I feel like I will be respected for my ideas, uh, not just, you know, for some other or disrespected for some superficial reasons. Hmm. So you see yourself in Alyssa's story a little bit. Yeah, I see myself in both stories, you know, in, in, in both what Sharon was describing and in Alyssa's story. Uh, but I also, you know, find myself having a different viewpoint on the other end of it. And I don't, you know, I don't like this idea that we should just, you know, lean out and you know, forge our own companies and be our own bosses like that. I, I don't I think the culture has to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's in the benefit of the culture, uh, you know, and so I still will push hard uh, for equal treatment. Um, and I don't think the answer is just, you know, stay up later and only hire women. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying what she's saying, obviously. Um, but, you know, I, I think that there is a there is a, a sort of a, another way too in an all of all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's going to be difficult to figure out what that is. Or maybe we just need to listen to the people who are telling us what needs to happen. <laughs> And for that, there's a couple more episodes uh, coming down the pike, both at Cited and Inquiring Minds. So Inquiring Minds listeners, uh, you will hear another episode on women's issues in STEM coming up next week. Uh, We'll be talking about women in engineering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we've got some really interesting people lined up for that. So that's it for another episode. Alex, thank you so much for joining me on Inquiring Minds this week. It was my pleasure. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgool, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Miller, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And be sure to check out and subscribe to Cited. You can find them, obviously, on iTunes and anywhere else you find your podcasts. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration and partnership with many media outlets. This episode was also produced with the guys and girls at Cited. Our music is produced by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. I'm Alexander Kim. I'm at Alexander B. Kim. And there's uh, our missing host, Kishore. (laughs) Should we do him? (laughs) <laughs> oh sure. You can up. always you can always find Kishore Hari at Science Geesh and Kishore will be back in a couple weeks when uh, we finish this collaboration. So see you next week. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.